Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer us, for we are poor and needy. Gladden the souls of your servants, for to you, O Lord, do we lift up our souls. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. So give ear, O Lord, to our prayer and listen to our plea for grace. Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth and unite our hearts to fear your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series through the book of Micah. And we've come to Micah chapter 4, verse 6. So Micah chapter 4, verse 6. You'll find that towards the end of the Old Testament between the books of Jonah and Nahum. Micah chapter 4. Beginning at verse 6. And we're going to read verses 6, 7, and 8 together and consider those together from God's Word. So, Micah chapter 4, beginning at verse 6, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own Word. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make a remnant, and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, This is uh, Micah continuing to see the glorious picture of God's restoring work after uh, slogging through those many passages on judgment. We have a wonderful extended consideration of uh, the glory of our God. It's coming, the, the, the relief that's coming to the people of God, the restoration that's coming to the world. And one commentator said, as this picture of restoration comes, it's like a puzzle coming together. Maybe, boys and girls, you've worked on a puzzle before, um, and you, I hope you know the trick for, with puzzles. If you don't know the trick, it's very important. You have to start with the outside. You have to start with the border, because um, you can find all those pieces with flat edges. That's just free advice this morning. Um, you have to start with that outside border, and then it begins to take shape. Right? You see where the colors are, you see where the pieces need to fit, and once you've got the border, then you can start filling it in. And it's almost as if that's what God is doing through Micah as he sees this picture of restoration. Micah had seen this glorious picture beginning to take shape at the beginning of chapter 4 of what God is going to do in the whole world. Um, and it was a glorious picture of how God is going to rule from Zion and that There's going to be this great movement towards him from all people coming to learn the word of God. And there's going to be this great movement out from Zion with all the people to take the word of God into the world. And there's going to be righteousness and peace. It's a great picture. But but what's missing from from that picture? What's not there yet? It's what would happen to God's own people. Right, that, that glorious picture began with what God is going to do amongst the nations, but the question is then how does God's people fit in to this picture? And we're beginning to see the, the picture fill in in verses 6 through 8 of what God has promised for his people. How in the future day that's coming, 
that day of glory, God's people will be established. That God will move graciously on behalf of his people. And what do we see God doing for his people in this passage? Well, God will rescue his flock. God will rebuild his people. And God will restore his dominion. That's the wonderful good news that's brought here in this passage. God will act graciously to restore his flock, to rebuild his people, and to restore his dominion. That's the glorious good news of what our God will do out of his abundant grace for those who belong to him. The first thing he'll he'll do is rescue the flock. Now, boys and girls, you might say, I don't remember reading anything about sheep in this passage. Um, Where do we get this notion of a flock? Um, Well, it's because of the words that Micah uses. Um, these, These adjectives, these verbal adjectives that he gives us, lame and driven away. Uh, lame and driven away are things that were often said of sheep. Um, it's, it's the evidence of a flock that's been the victim of some disaster. Right? If you saw a flock of sheep and the sheep were limping around and they were all scattered in different places, they'd been driven off um, wherever they had been. They're, they're, they're limping around in a pasture. You would, you would look at this, at this flock and say, man, this is a beat up flock. Something bad has happened to this flock of sheep. Something has hurt them that they're limping around. Something has scattered them that they're not all together. Um, They'd be in a pitiable condition. And if we saw a flock of sheep like that, we'd ask the question, what has happened to them? What has happened to them to bring this kind of thing about? Um, And we're told in this passage what has happened brought this about. We see that at the end of verse 6. Why are they lame? Why have they been driven away? Why have they been scattered? It's because of the affliction of the Lord. Right? The Lord says, these are the sheep whom I have afflicted. Um, This is a picture of what God's people in exile will be. Um, Hurt and driven away because of the covenant affliction of their God, because they had broken covenant with him. Um, And he had told them clearly, right, about the blessings that would come from walking with their God and of the dangers that awaited them if they turned their back on him, if they looked for protection elsewhere, if if they gave their loyalty to other gods, if they did other things, that bad things would happen to them. And Micah sees a flock that's been afflicted. A flock that's been afflicted by the Lord. Right? We, we heard from our, from our brother the importance of the, the name of the Lord whenever we see that in the text. Daniel Cortez preached that right from Psalm 110, the importance of the name of the Lord. Um, and we see that, the importance of the name of the Lord here. It's, it's, it's not just God has afflicted them, the Lord has afflicted them. This, this covenant God they had has punished them for their sin. And when God's people become lame and scattered on account of their sin, we also know that they are filled with oppression and become ashamed on account of their sin. Um, That's what Zephaniah says using these same ideas of the lame and the, the scattered. He says they are those who are oppressed. They are those who are ashamed. This is the discipline of the Lord. Um, And God 
disciplines his people for the same reasons that we discipline children and families. Right? God helps us to understand discipline in human terms when discipline functions correctly. Um, why are children disciplined? Well, in part to punish them for wrongdoing, but also to correct their behavior. Right? To discourage them from doing things that are harmful to them. To encourage them to do the things that are good. Um, and we understand that. We understand that that's the purpose of discipline. And we know that when it's happening to us, it's unpleasant. Right? Um, maybe boys and girls, you've heard parents say, this, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And you think, I don't know that that's true. Um, I think this is going to hurt me. Um, and I remember trying to get out of punishment when I was a little boy. And my dad would say, I don't think you're sorry you did it. I think you're sorry you got caught. But what is the point of discipline? Well, God's word makes it clear. Uh, Proverbs 22, 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now, this is not a lesson to beat folly out of your children, but what this is clearly saying is, if something doesn't get done in our hearts, we're going to continue to be fools. We need the discipline as children to drive the folly out, and discipline is unpleasant when you're going through it. But in the end, it produces something good. The just says, that's why discipline happens in families. God says, that's why I discipline those who are in my family. It's not pleasant when you're going through it. It's not a pleasant picture of a lame and scattered flock. But why does God do that? He does it for their good. He disciplines us for our good we're told in Hebrews 12, 10, and 11, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Right? We, we are, we're fools when we wander away from God and wander into other things, and God disciplines us that he might call us back to himself. Even though I was not always thankful at the time for the discipline that my parents administered, I am thankful for it now. Um, that they didn't let me just turn into the monster I would have been without them. But it didn't feel pleasant at the time. And sometimes I chafed under it. Um, but it was an ev evidence that they wanted me to be better than I would have been left to myself. That's what God's discipline is, an evidence to us. He wants us to be better than we would be if left to ourselves. And he disciplines us not only for our good, but because he loves us. That's ultimately what discipline shows, that we have a God who cares how we turn out. That we have a God who cares about our good, who cares about our holiness and acts so that we would be benefited. Because if he didn't care how we turned out, it would be a sign he didn't love us. But he loves us enough to not let us go our own way. And the proof of his love is not just in his discipline, but how he calls his people back after his discipline is done. Because this passage isn't just about the lame and the driven away. This is about the lame who are gathered the driven away who are collected in love by their God. 
that God promises that for a time I afflicted them, but when my discipline is done, I will gather them. His love guarantees that discipline is not forever. That this flock that looks so pitiable, lame, and scattered will be rescued by their God. And not only will they be rescued, will God come and rescue his flock, God's promise is to rebuild them. He will rescue his flock and he will rebuild his people. That's the glorious promise in this passage. That those who've made themselves lame, right, by bringing this on themselves, that have caused themselves to be driven away by the justice of God, will be called back. That God in grace will rebuild his people. That what God has put out of joint, God can heal. Where God has driven away, God will come and gather. It's the wonderful promise that we have when God allows us to be afflicted. Even though we know it's for his good, that he has some good purpose in it. Even when we can't see that good purpose, we can rest and rely on the power of God. There's nothing he puts out of joint that he cannot heal. There's nothing that he afflicts us with in this life that he does not have the power to correct. Calvin said, our hope is even that God who can strike us down in sin is the God who can raise the dead and has done so in the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is no affliction that God can't heal and that's the promise. Those people who've been afflicted, he will rescue and when he rescues them, he will rebuild them. They will be transformed from what they are into something new. What is promised here? The promise is that the lame will become the remnant. Now sometimes that word remnant just means those who are left over. Um, But sometimes it's invested with a lot more theological importance. And here it's not just those who are left over. It's the lame will become the remnant. One one person said, when God uses this word this way, he means objects of his saving activity. Those who become the remnant, those who by God's grace have endured a disaster and come out safely on the other side. They are those who endure the evil day, who've been chosen by God's grace to endure the evil day and to stand. They're the remnant chosen by God's grace to live. This is the way Isaiah uses the word remnant when he says in the beautiful words of Isaiah 46, 3 and 4, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. Who are the remnant chosen by grace? They're the people that God has been carrying from before they were born and will carry after they're dead. Who has always carried, who will never fail to carry. And these people that are so lame who've been put out of joint will be the remnant chosen by grace to be established by the Lord. To be built up by our God. Um, The same way Paul talks about the remnant in Romans 11.5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. These are the people that live, 
who endure, who stand, who are established all by the grace of their God. That's who the lame will become. And people, I think, are right to say, you know, this word lame does not appear too many times in the scriptures. Um, It's a kind of unique word. It doesn't come up that often. And so when you have words like that, you think about where else have I seen a word like this? Where else have I seen someone who was limping or lame? And people have said, you know, one one of the few places this word is used is after Jacob wrestles with God. And maybe you remember that, that scene from Genesis 32 where Jacob is in a rough spot. He's caught between his father-in-law that he can't go back to and his brother who's unhappy with him in front of him. He can't go backwards. He can't go forwards. He's prayed to God for relief that God would see him through the disaster he faces. And in the middle of the night, he, he finds himself attacked by someone and he begins to wrestle with them. Now, boys and girls, Jacob was a very strong man. We don't often think of him this way, but he's one of the the strongest men in the Old Testament. So when he starts wrestling with this person, he thinks, all right, maybe you've bit off more than you can chew because I'm a pretty good wrestler. And so he's fighting with this guy, and they seem pretty evenly matched for a while until the guy reaches out and touches his hip and puts it out of joint. And all of a sudden, Jacob really isn't wrestling anymore. He's just holding on for dear life. And you remember how that wrestling match ends. Morning's coming and the person he's wrestling with says, let me go, for morning is coming. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. He's clinging on for dear life to this person he knows is greater than him. And in this moment where they're locked in this struggle, this unknown stranger to Jacob says, what is your name? Now, that's an important moment in the story because Jacob's name means heel grabber. It means cheater. Um, And remember when when Esau was cheated out of his birthright and blessing, he said, rightly are you named Jacob, for you've cheated me these two times. It's this moment where he's in this crisis, right? And he's He's stuck between two things and now he's locked in, in, in this wrestling match with a guy he can't overcome who's greater than he is. And he's asked what your name is and he's sort of exposed for who he's been his whole life. A, a heel grabber and a cheater who's always tried to make his own way in the world. And he's sort of forced to confess, that's my name. And what does this unknown stranger say to him? Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. That's when Jacob realizes he's been wrestling with God. That's when he's lamed by what God has done to him. But he leaves the encounter changed and blessed. He has striven with God and overcome that his name is forever changed. And in the Old Testament, that becomes sort of proverbial for how God's people relate to their God. It becomes kind of the program for which God's people are pictured throughout the Old Testament. Hosea picks up that picture of God's people wrestling with him. Um, 
Hosea 12, three through six, we read, in the womb he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Um, I think there's an allusion here to that scene with Jacob and that struggle that has typified Israel. And as one commentator put it, Micah sees this glorious day that having been exiled and lamed, God now triumphantly blesses and restores Israel. They have striven with God and man. They have wept and sought his favor and they have overcome. They are no longer Jacob. They are Israel. They are no longer lame. They are a mighty nation. It's a picture of the lame and the scattered becoming great. By God's blessing and grace, the lame I will make a remnant, those who were cast off, a strong nation. Just as they were laid low by the Lord's covenant affliction, now they're built up by the Lord's covenant affection. His love gathers them. His love makes them whole. His love makes them strong. This is a fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham in Genesis 18. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And this building up, this strengthening of Israel finds its completion in the true Israel of God. The Lord Jesus Christ who comes into the world as the true Israel of God. The one who strives with God and man in his life and in his death and who overcomes by his cross and his resurrection and who shares in his his blessing with all those who cling to him By faith. Our God is a God who rescues his flock, who rebuilds his people, and who restores his dominion. That's part of the good news of this picture of restoration that God's people will be gathered, God's people will be transformed, they'll be made mighty, but the dominion will be restored. Uh, The kingship will be restored. That's the promise that comes at the end of verses 7 and 8. That God will restore his dominion. He promises that he himself will reign over them at the end of verse 7. Now we know that God is always king over his people. Um, God is always reigning over his people. But there are sometimes we feel the reign of God. And there are sometimes where it's hard to see how God is ruling and reigning. Where it becomes very hard to see. And there are times when it becomes very easy to see. Uh, They'll experience that in Micah's day when the armies of Assyria gather around Jerusalem and God drives them away. They'll they'll know that God is king in that moment. But there are many times where it doesn't seem like God is king. It doesn't feel like he's ruling and reigning. And maybe you can think about times in your life where you have felt like you know God is there, but it doesn't feel like he's there. And Micah sees a day when God's people will know he's there and feel he's there and see he's there because God will be reigning 
in their midst. It's a, it's a picture of future glory that we're given at the end of verse 7, of a new order of the Lord reigning in, with his people, and it's a personal reign. The Lord will rule over them. In a way, he's never ruled over them before, personally with them. It's a personal reign. It's a universal reign from Mount Zion. right? And, and not the Mount Zion, the, the local place in Israel, but the Mount Zion that chapter 4 talked about earlier, that, that mountain that we lifted up above all other mountains in the world. That, that picture of universal reign that we were given, that's still the Mount Zion that's pictured here. That, that mountain that's lifted up over the whole world and the one who reigns there reigns over the whole world. It's a picture of a personal reign of God, a universal reign of God, and an eternal reign of God. The glory is that he will be there and we will see it and we will experience it. The whole world will experience it and it will be experienced forever. Right? From this time forth and forevermore. Now and forever, God's people will experience the reign of their God on his throne. It's, it's a wonderful glory. Because as we've pointed out before, what was the problem with other glorious kings? They rule for a time, and then they die. Right? Or they, they rule for a time in righteousness, and then they turn away from God, and the kingdom falters. What is the, what's inherent in the promise of the Lord as king who reigns forever? It's a picture of a perfect kingship, a perfect kingdom, and a glory that never fades. The glory of that kingdom will be now, and the glory of that kingdom will be forever. Why? Because he will always be on the throne. He will always be reigning over his people. This is the kind of kingdom that everybody should desire to come. This is the kind of kingdom that everybody should desire to be a part of. This is the kind of kingdom that everybody can be a part of if they put their faith and trust in the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfills this prophecy and reigns an unending rule that promises unending blessedness. But verse 8 helps to fill out that picture of what that reign will be like because it talks about a future glory, but it connects that future glory with the former dominion. It connects that future glory with the former dominion that Israel once knew. You can imagine being an Israelite and sitting around and thinking, you know, we were once a world power. There was a time when all the enemies around us were afraid of us. There was a time where we ruled and we were in charge and there was nobody who could make us afraid. And now it's come to this, where we, we feel like a barely an island of, of people barely holding on and that the tide will sweep over our land all the way up to Jerusalem and that'll be the only thing that's left. And you can imagine them reading stories of the reign of David and the reign of Solomon, and thinking, man, what, what must those days have been like? It must have been glorious to be at peace and to be prosperous and to be unafraid, not worried about what little treaties are we going to have to make and who should we worry about tomorrow, but have peace from all the enemies all around. What a, what a glory that would have been. 
And God comes and says, you know, there's a future glory that's coming, but it's going to be like that former glory. Sometimes the picture of future glory is so great that there's nothing for us to attach it to, right? We can't imagine what that's going to be like. And so God comes and says, the future glory will be like the former dominion. It's going to be like that former glory that you've heard about but never experienced. And God prepares them for that by what he says in verse 8 about Jerusalem. He reminds them of Jerusalem's former glory. Um, And and I think really the way to take the first part of verse 8 is giving Jerusalem three names. Tower of the flock, hill, which is just Ophel in in Hebrew, and daughter Zion. I think God gives, gives Jerusalem three names there. The tower of the flock, the hill, and daughter Zion. And each one of those names evokes something about Jerusalem, something about that former glory. Because what is the tower of the flock? It's, it's, it's a little watchtower that shepherds could watch over their sheep that way. It would lift them up a little bit so they could watch from, from a little bit of an advantage point so they could have a better look over their sheep. And Jerusalem had been for God's people the tower of the flock. And there was a shepherd king who ruled there who looked out over the flock. It was a picture of the protection they enjoyed under David's kingdom. uh, Where David was protecting his people. And put down all the enemies all around them so that they lived in peace. The Jerusalem had been the tower of the flock, that former glory. It was a picture of protection. Calling, Calling it the hill was a picture of its power. Jerusalem was, a, was a, on a hill that was a fortified place. Now, we don't think hill sounds very great, but the hill that, J- that Jerusalem was on made it a very defensible city. In fact, when the Jebusites had that hill and David came to take the hill, the Jebusites said, yeah, come on. The blind and the lame will turn you away. You can't come in here. Um, and the very next verse tells us, and so David came in there and put them off the hill and took the hill for his own. It's a picture of power. It's when God's people were unmatched in power. And David could come to a hill that people looked and said, nobody can take that hill. And David took the hill. Why? In the power of the Lord. It was a picture of protection. It was a picture of power. It was a, protect, it was a picture of provision. Daughter Zion. That wasn't just mighty, but was good for the welfare of God's people. That that David not only protected them by military might, but he watched over his people and he ruled his people well. The word of God went forth uninterrupted during David's reign. David did justice for everyone. Zion was a place where God's people were provided for, that nurtured the people of God. Every one of these names is, is a blast in the past, a reminder of the glory that was. And so it's wonderful that God uses those names to draw those, those memories of that glorious past and then says, the former dominion shall come. The former dominion shall come. What it was, it will be again. That glory is not departed. 
That glory is coming. What Israel was at its best, it will be again. That kingdom that David made by his might, triumphing over all of his enemies, that Solomon maintained in peace and wisdom, that built up in glorious wealth and splendor, that's the kind of kingdom the new kingdom will be. That's the kind of kingdom that will last. A kingdom that's worthy of Jerusalem. The kingship for the daughter Jerusalem. The kingship fit for daughter Jerusalem. Like the former dominion, but greater. Like everything that was good about Israel at its best, but better. Do you see how the the pictures of the puzzle is becoming clearer? And the only, the only hole that's really missing is how will we connect the past with the future? And that's what Micah will go on to say, the, the leader that will rise up, who is both from the line of David and ancient of days, from of old. It'll, it'll fill the picture that this is the dominion over which Jesus Christ will reign. That's what makes it like the old one, but better. A far greater dominion because it has a far greater king. Um, I'll, I'll end with Calvin's description of that kingdom. He says, Today the kingdom of David's house no longer exists, but a far more excellent kingdom does. For we possess the truth which these symbols represented. Today Jesus, the Son of God, personally reigns over us. He is called our Emmanuel, a name given to him by the Holy Spirit. It means that God is with us, that we are one with him and that he lives in us. Thus we enjoy a far more excellent condition than did our ancient fathers, for we have not only a man in the lineage of David on our side, but our Redeemer, the Son of God, who wants us to be his people and his flock. Although we may not see Jesus Christ, he does not abandon us while we are here, but he enables us to feel his presence through faith and hope. Thus we can be confident that when he comes to our aid, we can never be confounded. So when we feel like the lame and the scattered of this world, the Lord Jesus Christ reminds us that we are the remnant, the strong nation that he has built in himself, that he is reigning over this kingdom now. Um, And seeing him, then we can live in eager hope of the kingdom that's coming when he returns in glory. May all here live in faith in that king and an eager expectation of that kingdom that's coming and that soon. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how thankful we are to see this vision of hope that even though you discipline the ones that you love, you do it for their good and that discipline gives way in the end to uh, your glorious goodness to your people that you rebuild the remnant, that you gather those who are straying, and that you yourself will reign. We thank you that we have lived to see that promise come to victorious fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead and reigns even now at your right hand. How thankful we are to know that that kingdom of glory has been begun in him and will be finished in him when he comes again in glory that that victorious fulfillment that already exists will give way to the consummate fulfillment when Jesus comes again. 
How we long for that former dominion to be restored in its fullness. To see the glory of that kingdom. So would you help us now to live as citizens of that kingdom of grace that will become the kingdom of glory. And when we don't see the kingdom clearly in this world, help us to see Jesus. And to know that if we see our king, we will certainly see the glory of his kingdom. May all here embrace him by faith. Give us that grace by your spirit, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.